0: I invite you to please stand as we read the Word of God together and open your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 13. Luke 13, and we will begin reading in verse 10 and read through verse 17. Again, Luke 13, beginning in verse 10. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues On the Sabbath. And there was a woman who, for 18 years, had had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again. And began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days in which work should be done. So come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated. And the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. Amen. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this text. We thank you that it reveals Christ in his majesty, in his power, in his grace, and his compassion. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you healed this woman, that you laid your hands on her, and that immediately she was healed. And that this not only demonstrated your power over disease and sickness, but also your power over demons, over Satan. We thank you that right now, O God, that as always and as you forever will be, you are the only God, the almighty, omnipotent God, that you are unique, that there is no other beside you, that you have no rival, that you are far above and beyond all other beings including Satan and his demons. And we thank you that you sent Christ into the world to destroy the works of the devil and that Christ was victorious over all of the onslaught of temptation by the devil and that he... Demonstrated his complete mastery over the demons by casting them out of people and healing those who had been afflicted by the demons. And that also Christ has made conquest over Satan on the cross. When Christ died, he took the weapon of death from the devil. And he rendered him defeated. And so even though, O God, we face an ancient foe, a formidable foe, we rejoice and we recognize that he is defeated, that one day he will be eternally destroyed. And we thank you again that he is completely under your sovereign control and that he cannot make any step to attack us without your permission. Father, we fear you, we reverence you, we stand in awe of you and your power, your majesty, your might. And as we study your word in a few moments, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide our thinking, that he would open up your word to our minds that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see the truth and not just understand the truth but to rejoice in the truth. May it be a cause of worship in our hearts. We recognize that we are in a spiritual battle and I pray that you would equip us, O God, to know how to fight in the way that you've called us. We pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be saved. It is a joy to honor the Lord, and it is a joy to once again invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. In the providence of God, this is where we are in our study of this wonderful letter by Paul to the church at Ephesus. We'll be looking at verse 10 through 20. You'll note in your bulletin the title of this message is the Christian Spiritual Warfare, Part 3, A Call to Arms. And we will be looking specifically at verses 10 and 11, but I do want to read the entire passage to have it in our minds as we begin today. So follow along as I read to you the Word of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. This passage that I have just read in your hearing is the classic biblical text on the Christian spiritual warfare. To be sure, there are other passages in the Bible that address the theme of spiritual warfare, But this text is unsurpassed in terms of its fullness and in terms of its comprehensive treatment of our spiritual combat with Satan and his host of demons. Thus, its significance in the life of a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ cannot be overstated. And as we consider together the great theme of our spiritual warfare It is important to note at the very outset that there are two extreme dangers that we must be sure to avoid. The first is to ignore the reality of spiritual warfare altogether. And the second is to go beyond the bounds of Scripture in both how we understand and how we are to engage in spiritual warfare. This first danger is what is called naturalism, which is the worldview that rejects all things supernatural and affirms that reality is limited to what we can see, hear, taste, smell, and touch. And therefore, according to... The worldview of naturalism, the belief in the existence of angels, Satan, and demons is a holdover from an ancient, medieval, pre-enlightenment, pre-modern, superstitious view of the world. And therefore, according to naturalism, all of this that we're talking about is really just fantasy. Well, obviously, naturalism is patently false because the Bible does affirm the reality of supernaturalism, including the existence of angels, demons, Satan, and the reality of spiritual warfare. To the other extreme, there is the danger of affirming a supernaturalistic worldview, but going beyond the bounds of what the Bible says about spiritual warfare. And how we are to engage in it. This is especially common within Pentecostal circles and charismatic circles where people tend to attribute everything to the devil from getting a common cold to losing a parking spot at the mall. These kinds of people see the devil in everything. They see him everywhere, behind every door, under every chair. And they seek to do things like attack the devil, bind the devil, rebuke the devil. But as we will see, beloved, this goes beyond the boundaries of what the Bible says about our spiritual warfare. So our goal is going to be very simple we are going to carefully endeavor to understand what the Bible says about spiritual warfare because the Bible is the only source of information that we have on the subject. And with that said, there is no better passage in the Bible that addresses spiritual warfare than what is before us in Ephesians chapter 6. Now, let me give you sort of a road map for where we are going in this text. If you will take your bulletin and look where the sermon notes are, you'll notice there are three main parts to our text, noted by Roman numerals 1, 2, and 3 at the top of the page. In verses 10 through 13, we have the believer's warfare. In verses 14 through 17, we have the believer's armor. And then in verses 18 through 20, we have the believer's lifeline. Now, we're going to take our time through this passage, so again, we can be very careful to develop a solidly biblical understanding of how to properly engage in spiritual warfare. And with our time this morning, we are only going to be able to cover part of the first main point, the believer's warfare. And under this main point, we have 2 subpoints. also on your sermon notes page, letter A and B the strength for our warfare, and the nature of our warfare. So let's turn now to letter A, the strength for our warfare. In verse 10, Paul begins this section with the word, finally. This is Paul's way of saying that he has now reached the end, the final section of his letter. But not only is this the conclusion of his letter, it is also the climax of his letter. You may not realize that Paul has more to say in this letter than in any other letter that he wrote in the New Testament about Satan, angels, and demons. He references them in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3 chapter 4, and now in this final section of the letter, he gives to us what is the fullest treatment anywhere in the Bible on spiritual warfare. And so after addressing various groups within the church in chapter 5, 21 through 6, 9, Paul now concludes this letter by addressing the entire congregation once again, wherein he calls the church to arms, And as Paul gives us a call to arms, he begins by identifying the strength for our warfare in verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So Paul begins this passage, the content of this passage, by focusing on divine power. In fact, you will notice that Paul uses three different words, all of which speak about divine power. Strong, strength, and might. The first word that he uses is a command, be strong in the Lord. And then he restates the command in the rest of the phrase when he says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So be strong in the Lord and be strong in the strength of his might. Now why does Paul begin this way and why does he use so many words that seem to say the same thing? Is he being redundant? No, what Paul is doing at the very beginning is emphasizing our desperate need for divine power for divine strength. So, beloved, the very first principle that you need to understand from this text is that on your own, in your own strength, you do not have the ability to successfully engage in spiritual warfare. You are not able to do this. We are not fit for the battle in our own strength. Why? Because of who our opponent is the devil, and his host of demons. Do you remember what Martin Luther said about the devil in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God? On earth is not his equal. That is a true statement. That is an accurate statement. On earth is not his equal. Now imagine with me, if you would, that you receive a letter in the mail and it comes to you from the White House. And in the letter, it states that you are considered to be an enemy of the United States of America and that the President has made the decision to use all of the resources at his disposal to destroy you, including sending. To hunt you down, SEAL Team 6. That would be terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. But all of the resources, all of the military might of the most powerful nation in the history of the world, including the most elite soldiers in the world, pales, beloved, in comparison to the power of Satan and his demons. Satan and his demons could easily destroy the United States of America with all of its military might and it would be a decidedly victory for the devil. So, beloved, what I'm trying to say to you is that you need to understand that we are involved in a war with an opponent that is vastly superior to us. We are completely outmatched in this warfare against Satan and his demons. And in our own strength, we have no ability to wage war successfully against him. And that is why Paul begins with these wonderfully encouraging words Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Not your might, but his might. And so the bad news is that Satan and his demons are against you and that you are completely unable to fight against them with any success, but the good news is that the strength of the Lord is available to you. That is incredible, incredibly good news, really, really good news because the strength of the Lord is greater than the strength of Satan and his host of demons. A couple of weeks ago, you may remember what we said in our message as we were beginning the series, and we noted this, that Jesus is sovereign over Satan. Satan is not equal to Jesus. Jesus is sovereign over Satan, and as we said, Jesus was victorious over the devil's temptations. He demonstrated complete mastery over the demons in the Gospels, and he made conquest over Satan on the cross. And so Jesus is sovereign over Satan in every way. He has defeated Satan one day. He will destroy Satan at the end of time by casting him in the lake of fire where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever according to Revelation 20 and verse 10. But until that great and glorious day, there are two things that you must remember, beloved. Number one, Satan and his demons are engaged in warfare against you. And number two, the Lord provides the strength that you need for the battle. And by the way, the command to be strong in verse 10 is present tense, which indicates something to us very significant about our spiritual warfare. How often is our warfare taking place? What's the answer? All the time. All the time. We need to be constantly strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might because the devil and his demons do not take days off. They do not call in sick. They do not take vacations. They do not call for a truce. They do not call for a ceasefire. The battle is ever and always raging. So Paul says, keep on being strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Because the Christian life in this world from start to finish is a war. What did Jesus say in John 15 that we could do apart from him? Nothing. Nothing. We can do nothing apart from him of any spiritual value, and that includes waging a war against the devil and his demons. Now, this is the second time in Ephesians that Paul uses this combination of words for power. The first time is in chapter 1 and verse 19, so turn with me there for a moment. Ephesians 1, where Paul writes, "'And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe?' These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Paul is engaged in verse 19 in praying for the church at Ephesus. And his prayer for them is that they would understand that the almighty, omnipotent power of God is at the disposal of the church. And when he illustrates how powerful the power of God is that is available to us to live the Christian life, notice how he describes that power. He describes the power of God in terms of the resurrection and ascension power of Christ in verse 20 and 21, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. There is the demonstration of the power of God, the greatest demonstration of the power of God, effected in the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And so, beloved, what Paul is laboring to say is that Jesus Christ is the unrivaled ruler of this age and in the age to come. His power exceeds, far exceeds, everyone and everything else, including the devil and his demons. And this is incredibly good news because this is the power that is available to you to not only live the Christian life but to engage in spiritual warfare. It is a power that is far more powerful than Satan and his demons. And now as we come to verse 11 of chapter 6, Paul continues the theme of divine power when he says, put on the full armor of God. What is the relationship of this phrase in verse 11 to what Paul says in verse 10? The phrase, put on the full armor of God, explains how verse 10 is to be carried out. The divine power that is necessary for spiritual warfare is appropriated, beloved, by putting on the full armor of God. The strength, the almighty, omnipotent strength of Christ is found in the full armor of God. The words put on in verse 11 is the second command in this passage. And what are we to put on? Paul says the full armor of God. Now there are two things to note here. Number one, Paul says, the full armor of God. In other words, don't neglect a single piece of your armor because you are going to need every piece that is available to you. You can't afford to miss a single piece of your spiritual armor. And then number two, he says, this armor is of God. In other words, you're not to come up with your own armor. It is the armor of God that you are to put on. When Paul describes the armor of God in detail in verses 14 through 17, much of what he says comes from the book of Isaiah. Now, a lot of the commentaries, when you read them, they'll say, you know, Paul is sitting in a Roman imprisonment. He sees soldiers all the time. He is chained to a soldier. And so he is inspired by what he sees in these soldiers to write what he does here. But I don't believe that is the case. Because as he describes the armor in verses 14 through 17, he is being inspired by the book of Isaiah. He is quoting from the book of Isaiah. And the imagery that he draws from in Isaiah is that of God as a divine warrior who wears armor as he wages war against his adversaries. And so this is the armor that God himself wears in the book of Isaiah and makes available to us. And therefore, it is the armor of God. It is the armor that is from God and it is the armor that God himself wears. So now let's summarize what we have seen so far. As a Christian, as long as you live in this world, you are involved in a spiritual conflict with Satan and his demons. You need to know that we are not living in peacetime, we are living in wartime. And so it is vital, it is imperative for you as a Christian to develop a wartime mentality, not a peacetime mentality. The moment you became a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you also became a soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ and commenced in a spiritual battle that will last as long as you draw your breath in this life. And in this passage, Paul gives us this powerful, profound call to arms to engage in spiritual warfare not in our own strength but in the unsurpassing, unrivaled strength of Christ who is sovereign over Satan. Now turn with me, if you would, to the front of your bulletin. There is a quote that I want to read that I want you to follow with me because it is so rich. It is by William Grenall, who was a Puritan who wrote a book on this passage in Ephesians 6, and guess how long it was? More than 1,300 pages. And as he wrote it, he says it is a small gift to the church. A small gift, 1,300 pages. And here is one of the many quotes from gernal on spiritual warfare. He says this, In heaven we shall appear not in armor, but in robes of glory, But here they, that is the pieces of armor, are to be worn night and day. We must walk, work, and sleep in them, or else we are not true soldiers of Christ. Again, that comes from the Christian in complete armor. The armor is to be worn night and day. We must walk in the armor, work in the armor, sleep in the armor. You put it on, you never take it off because you are never away from the battle. And now we come to our next point, letter B the nature of our warfare. And so I ask you, what is the goal in our warfare? What is the goal in this war? What is the purpose for which we are to be strengthened with the strength of Christ by putting on the full armor of God? Well, Paul tells us in the middle of verse 11, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The words so that there in verse 11 indicate the goal, the purpose uh, for putting on the armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. In this spiritual warfare, We as believers, with the strength of Christ, are to stand firm, stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, with the rest of our time this morning, I want to focus on just that one phrase, the schemes of the devil, because herein we have tremendous insight into the nature of our conflict, We get our English word method from the Greek word that Paul uses here, translated in English, schemes. Paul is talking about the methods of Satan, the schemes of Satan. And because of the context being that of military conflict, it's probably better to translate this word as tactics or strategies. These are the strategies of the devil. These are the tactics of the devil and you will notice that the word is plural. And what does that indicate to us? It indicates that the devil's attacks are both, listen to this very carefully, repeated and varied. They are repeated and they are varied. The devil doesn't just attack once and then go away, but he is relentless in his attack against the people of God. And he doesn't just employ one strategy in his attack against the people of God, but rather he has a large arsenal of strategies, methods, and schemes that he uses against the people of God. Now, the Bible is not a complete manual on all of the methods and strategies that the devil employs, but the Bible is clear in revealing The three most common methods that the devil uses against us. And here they are number one, he tempts us to sin. Number two, he intimidates us through persecution. And then number three, he attacks the word of God. And we're only going to have time to look at the first one this morning. He tempts us to sin. As you know, one of the names the Bible gives to the devil is the tempter. In fact, the very first time we are introduced to the devil in the Word of God in Genesis chapter 3, what is he doing? He is tempting Eve. He does the same thing to Jesus in Matthew 4 at the beginning of his public ministry as we've seen already in this series. Now on the one hand, we don't want to underestimate the power of Satan. He is extremely powerful, far more powerful than us. On earth is not his equal. But on the other hand, we don't want to overestimate the power of Satan because there are many things that he cannot do. One of which, listen carefully, is make you sin. He does not have the power to make you sin. And it's important to say that because you oftentimes hear people say what? The devil made me do it. They commit some sinful act. They know that it's wrong. They feel guilty. But they blame shift to the devil and say that it's really not my fault. I was a victim. The devil made me do it. In fact, listen, this is what Eve says in Genesis 3.13. The devil made me do it. The serpent made me do it. But that's not a true statement. No one can stand before God and justify their sin by saying, the devil made me do it. I was a victim. I had no choice. And we know this in part because after Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, through Satan's temptation, what does God do in response? He pronounces curses upon the serpent, yes, but then also upon the woman and the man. Why? Because they were guilty. Their acts deserved to be punished, and therefore they suffered consequences from God. They were held accountable by God for being seduced by the devil's lies. God did not accept. The devil made me do it. So again, I say to you, the devil can tempt you to sin, and he does, but he cannot make you sin. He does not have that kind of power. So what then makes us sin? If we can't blame the devil, what is the cause of our sin? Well, let's turn for a moment to James 1 where we find the very specific answer to that question. James 1 beginning in verse 13. And what James says to us in James 1:13 through 15 is that it's not the devil who makes us sin. It's not God who makes us sin. It is our own sinful nature that makes us sin. James 1.13, "'Let no one say when he is tempted, "'I am being tempted by God, "'for God cannot be tempted by evil, "'and he himself does not tempt anyone.'" So it's not God's fault. God is not the one soliciting you to sin. Verse 14, "'But each one is tempted when he is carried away "'and enticed by the devil.'" Is that what it says? Each one is enticed and carried away by his own lust. So what is the cause of sin in your life? It's your own sinful desires. It's your flesh. He continues in verse 15, Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So why do we sin? not because the devil made us do it. We sin because we desire sin. As sinful people, it is what comes natural to us. It is natural to us. In fact, we do not need the devil to make us sin because even if there were no devil, we would still sin. We do not need the help of the devil to sin because by nature we are sinners. So, the inward solicitation to sin comes from our own flesh. But the devil has a role in this because he provides a myriad of temptations for us to be seduced by. And he extends these temptations to us either in personal attacks from him or his host of demons or from the evil world system over which he rules. So sometimes in the Bible we find people being tempted to sin because the devil is personally attacking them or the demons are doing that or it may simply be the evil world system of which he is the prince and the ruler. So we have three enemies, you know this, the world, the flesh and the devil. The flesh is the internal enemy, and the devil and the evil world system are external enemies, and all three work in concert together against the good of our souls. And so you can think about it this way the flesh is the hook, and the world is the bait. The world is the bait. And Satan will take the things of the world, things that your flesh naturally craves, and he will use that to seduce you, to tempt you to sin. Now, we said before, it bears repeating... There's nothing in the Bible that indicates that the devil can read your mind. He does not have that ability. That is the power that belongs to God alone. The devil is not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. Only God is. But listen, he does know how you think. He knows how you think, and he can observe your habits, and he can observe your weaknesses along with the help of his demons who also observe your habits and your weaknesses. And therefore, he knows what particular temptations to sin that are most peculiar to you, that you are most vulnerable to, and to prove this, Go no further than Matthew 4. Why does the devil begin to tempt Jesus with food? Because it says he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. The devil observed that. He knew that he was hungry. He observes what is happening, and therefore he structures that temptation to fit the vulnerability of that person. And he does the same with us. And so, beloved, please understand that the devil is extremely skilled in his temptations. In fact, it seems fair to say that over time, over millennia, that the devil has been a fallen angel, that his skill at tempting us to sin has only improved Just imagine if you had something that you were giving yourself to for thousands of years that you would become more and more skillful at that craft. His craft is tempting us to sin. This, I believe, is part of why the world is becoming increasingly more and more evil and wicked because the ruler of this world is increasingly becoming more and more skilled at tempting us. Us to sin. Now, what I want to do is look at some examples in the Bible of how Satan tempts us to sin. And so let's begin by going to a book of the Bible we rarely go to, and that is 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles chapter 21. There is a very interesting statement here about King David. 1 Chronicles chapter 21. You have Samuel, then you have Kings, and then you have Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 21, 1 and 2. It says, Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Verse 2, So David said to Joab and to the princes of the people, Go, number Israel. From Beersheba, even to Dan, and bring me word that I may know their number. What is David doing? Taking a census of the army. Why is he doing that? Well, there's a couple of reasons that play number one, pride, taking pride in the size of his military power. And number two, what is he also exhibiting? A lack of trust in God. What was unique about the military of Israel is that God was their warrior, God was to fight their battles and at this very moment David is failing to trust God as the divine warrior on behalf of Israel. And so you think about the pride of David and the lack of trust in David's heart to God and also notice in verse 21 that who was behind this solicitation for David to sin in this way? It is Satan who is standing up against Israel, moving David to do the census. And so what does he employ? What is his strategy in the life of David? It is pride. It is so subtle. It is pride, and it is a lack of trust in God as their divine warrior. And so here in this one little verse, we can see the subtlety, the craft, the skill of Satan to tempt King David, the greatest king in the history of Israel, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's move to the New Testament to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5, a very familiar passage. Acts chapter 5. And what is interesting about this passage is that this is the first time that we read about a, a, a significant problem in the early church. Things are going well by the grace of God. At this point in the early history of the church, it is growing by leaps and bounds. The Lord is adding to their number daily those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we find at the end of chapter 4 that there is a tremendous reality happening in the early church. People are sharing. They're giving away their possessions to help the poor, to help the poor in the church. And then we come to chapter 5. In verse 1, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, they sold a piece of property because this is what people were doing. People would literally take their property, sell it, take the proceeds, give it to the apostles, and they would then give it to the poor, the needy of the church. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they see this happening. They jump on the bandwagon, as it were. They sell their property. But note verse 2, and kept back some of the price for himself. He has every right to do that. It's his property. There's no law that says you have to give every penny that you earn from selling your property. So he sells the property. He keeps some of it to himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. And what he does is he tells the apostles, this is the entire amount of money that we sold our property for. What is the sin that's being committed here? It's pride. It's hypocrisy. It's trying to make themselves to look more spiritual than they really are, to give the impression that they're more generous than they really are. And notice what Peter says in verse 3 but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Somehow Peter knows what is happening in the heart of Ananias. Satan is involved in this solicitation to sin. Verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Verse 5, and as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. He died. God killed him. And great fear spreads to the whole church. So here is this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. Sapphira also will die in the next few verses because of their sin. They have been seduced by the devil to commit pride, hypocrisy, gross hypocrisy. And even though the devil is involved in verse 3... It cannot be said by Ananias and Sapphira that the devil made me do it, because God kills Ananias and Sapphira. He holds them accountable for their sin, because they were not victims. They willingly accepted the bait that the devil had fed them, and they died. Well, this is not the only example in the New Testament we have of the devil's temptation. Look at 1 Corinthians 7, another very interesting statement about one of the schemes, the strategies of the devil, 1 Corinthians 7. This is a chapter about marriage. And Paul begins in verse 1 by saying, "...now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman." He's talking about sexual purity. He's talking about abstaining from sexual immorality. That's the idea of touching a woman. Verse 2, "...but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband." So he's exhorting, he's, he's, he's exalting the great institution of marriage. It is a wonderful thing. It is a cure in one sense for sexual immorality... Verse 3, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her duty. That is talking about sexual relations within marriage. Each partner is to serve the other in this way. The wife does not have the authority, verse 4, over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. The husband does not have a right to withhold his body from his wife, and the wife does not have the authority over her own body to say, "'You can't have my body to her husband.'" And so there is to be this giving away within marriage in the sexual way. But notice verse 5 stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time. In other words, don't refuse sexual relations in your marriage unless both of you agree, and unless it's for a limited period of time. Why? What may result? So that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So if you have a husband and wife and the sexual needs are not being met within that marriage, you know what that is an opportunity for? That is an opportunity for Satan to exploit, to offer bait to either the husband or the wife to commit sexual Sin. This is one of his schemes, one of his tactics. Now, in 2 Corinthians, the next epistle over, we see another example of one of the schemes of the devil, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And here, Paul is talking about how the church is to reaffirm their love for a certain brother who probably is the brother mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5 that was in fact committing sexual sin and was excommunicated from the church. And so if that is the individual at hand in 2 Corinthians 2, the idea is that this person has repented of his sin. He is now wanting to come back into the fellowship of the local church and Paul exhorts the church to receive him. To accept him, to restore him. And notice what he says in verse 11. Why are they to do this? Why are they to forgive and to restore this man so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes? If the church fails to forgive this man, if the church fails to restore this man based upon his repentance, then Satan can use this as an opportunity to employ one of his schemes. So he can use unforgiveness. He can use bitterness in the body of Christ and exploit it for his own ends. And then finally, one more example that we'll look at is in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26 And you may remember back when we were in Ephesians 4, Paul is going through just a, a list, if you will, of exhortations to the church to live out the Christian life. One of which is here in verse 26, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. There is the place of righteous anger. We looked at that before many months ago. But you have to be careful even when you exhibit righteous anger because it can easily degenerate into unrighteous anger. Sinful anger. Therefore, be careful with it. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Verse 27 And do not give the devil an opportunity. So, the idea is that the devil can exploit sinful anger. He can use that to exploit and to offer his temptations. So, in just these few examples that we have seen, Satan tempts us with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. He tempts us with pride, with hypocrisy, with sexual sin, with unforgiveness, and with sinful anger. And his goal is to compromise the purity and the unity of the church. The purity and the unity of the church. Now let me give you some concluding thoughts as we wrap up our time for this morning. As a Christian, you are involved in a spiritual war with Satan and his demons, whether you realize it or not. So let me ask you, how conscious are you of being in a spiritual war? Do you live with a wartime mentality or with a peacetime mentality? How seriously are you about putting on the full armor of God? Number two, a second concluding thought. And this is a wonderful reminder. There is nothing in this text in Ephesians 6 to indicate that we, as the people of God, are to live in the fear of Satan or his demons. The Bible never tells us to fear Satan, to fear the devil, to fear his demonic host. It tells us to fear God alone, to fear Christ even in Ephesians 5.21, never to fear the devil. In fact, the opposite is true because of the unsurpassing, unrivaled power of Christ being available to you. You are to live in the full confidence of knowing that you can stand firm in this battle. This is a battle that you can stand firm in, not one that you have to lose. Christ was victorious over the temptations of the devil and in the strength of Christ, you too can be victorious over them as well. And now a third concluding thought is this. There is a call to unity in this passage, a call to unity. As Christians, we have a common enemy, and it's not each other. It's the devil and his host. So listen carefully. We are not called to fight against each other as unfortunately sometimes happens in the local church, but rather we are to help each other to fight against our common enemy in our common spiritual war. And so the way that you should view your brothers and sisters in Christ is in this way. They are your fellow soldiers who are engaging in a common war and that you should do everything you can to assist them and to encourage them in the fight. Don't fight against them. Seek to help them and to serve them. Well, there's much more to say, but we'll have to wait, Lord willing, until next time. Our Father, we thank you for the little bit that we have been able to see together this morning from your word. And we understand that there is an invisible world of reality that is going on and though much of the world ignores this or mocks it we understand that according to your word it is real that there is a real devil who is a real enemy who employs real schemes against us to tempt us to sin to seduce us to sin. And as Paul said, we are not ignorant of his schemes. We are aware of what he is up to. And we thank you so much, O God, that you make your power available to us to fight this war. And that you call us to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, And to put on the full armor of God so that we will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Father, I pray that you would take these things and use them as a tremendous help and encouragement to your people. And in the weeks to come, I pray that you would continue to equip us and strengthen us as we continue to learn more of how we are to engage in this tremendous spiritual conflict. We thank you for the ultimate victory that Christ has accomplished in our behalf, and we thank you and praise you for that in his name, amen.